Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. If you think about some of the great programs that we have passed, whether it's Social Security or other things, they have come out of moments of crisis often. And perhaps this is one of them, where we can fundamentally restructure some of what our economy and our communities and our country have been centered on and and make it more equitable. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, where we are slowly going insane, having not left the house in God knows how long. Um, No, we're doing great. Everything is great. (laughs) Uh, Before we begin today, a request, actually. So as part of my effort to have some shows that are not all coronavirus all the time, we're having a show I've wanted to do for a long time, actually, which is having on Sean Carroll, who is the author of the beautiful and revelatory book, Something Deeply Hidden, which is about quantum mechanics. And Sean, he's not bullshitting on this. He is a quantum physicist. He is at Caltech. He's just a brilliant guy who's done foundational work in the space. And I am not any of those things. And so this is going to be an episode where I get to ask Sean my sort of dumb questions about quantum mechanics, which his book makes me feel better about because it's all about how nobody, including the people who study this, actually understand anything really about quantum mechanics. They can use it to predict things. But why does it work the way it does? What is it telling us? It's all it's all a mystery. And Sean is trying to not just solve the mystery, but but help get people focused on the mystery. But I want this show to play that role for others, too. So if you have dumb questions about quantum mechanics, they don't need to be dumb. They could just be basic questions. But but the kinds of questions that are simple and straightforward enough that sometimes it feels embarrassing to ask them, like why and what, please email them to us at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. The other quick request, we are up for a Webby, which is a nice little word. Uh, You can vote for us by clicking on the voting link in the show notes. A bunch of other Vox Media shows are up too. Good vote for them too. Um, but we'd be grateful if you took a moment and did that. It'd be a nice little bit of recognition for the show. All that said, I am excited about today's episode, which is with Representative Pramila Jayapal, who is from Washington. She is a co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus. She is considered a tremendous rising star in the House Democratic Caucus, somebody who is seen by many to be a future leader, potentially, of the entire caucus in one of those top positions. And she's somebody who we've covered a lot the effort on the left to build public power, right, through running a Bernie Sanders speeches, Twitter, et cetera, right? There's a public-facing effort to build left power. But she is at the center of the left's institutional effort to build power, right, to to give progressives a bigger voice in the Democratic caucus to make sure they are heard on bills. She also has some very important bills, including something called the Paycheck Guarantee Act. We talk about at length here. I really appreciated the way she showed up to this interview. Um, You guys have all heard me do interviews with politicians before. It is sometimes hard to get them to have an actual conversation. Uh, That was not the case with Jayapal. And she was more honest about 
tactical considerations and strategic boundaries than I think people normally are. So it's really, I think, in addition, just a great conversation on its own merit. It's an insight into what the people trying to plot the strategy inside the House are actually dealing with, thinking about what they feel constrains them. It's a good lesson in, in how this stuff really works for all of us, myself very much included. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, but here is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Representative Jayapal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. It's so great to be with you. I want to start with a question that I am getting most often from readers, which is, are Democrats getting rolled on stimulus? Well, I don't think we're getting rolled at all. Just, you know, going back in time when the first case was confirmed case was diagnosed, that was here in my home state. And it was January 21st. And it took a while. Our first death was on February 29th. We passed our first package the week after that. And it took a while for the rest of the country to wake up. It shouldn't have, I don't think. But I think the administration was in denial. I think that, you know, the president was on TV likening it to a hoax. He was dismissing concerns repeatedly, you know, failing to treat it like a serious threat. And so it sort of got left to individual states, governors, mayors, this very, very disaggregated response, not cohesive, not coordinated. And the fact that different states were experiencing things in a different way made it even more complicated. So it wasn't just that Congress had to step in. We actually had to step in against a president who was dismissing the threat. When you think about the fact that we passed three packages in three weeks that totaled almost two and a half trillion dollars, it's a remarkable achievement. It also means that we did as much as we could quickly. And perhaps it wasn't all the most effective or the most necessary, but there was some work to kind of play back and get relief because so many states like mine were really in the throes of, at that time, already hundreds of people dying. Now, that that increased dramatically with New York and other places across the country. And I think when people started to see what was happening in their backyards, the reality of it hit in. So I don't think we've been rolled, but I just think that the whole set of circumstances has been challenging and we have not responded yet at the scale of the crisis that we face. It's just unprecedented. And I think it has taken a long time for people to wrap their heads around that, not only on our side, but on the Republican side and certainly on the administration, which veers and careens from one extreme to the other. Careens is a good word for that. I appreciate you drawing out that dynamic. And and the reason I asked the question in that somewhat provocative way to start is that something that I have seen a lot and heard a lot is in particularly the most recent stimulus bill, people saw the $25 billion and demand for a national strategy on testing described as a concession made to Democrats, a win for Democrats. And there's been a frustration, but also, in my view, an undercover dynamic where Democrats are being either forced or asked or deciding to act as the governing party from the minority. And I think when a lot of liberals are frustrated, it's because they make this analogy to Republicans in the Obama years who were willing to kill things to get what they wanted, um, things here being bills. Uh, and whereas Democrats now seem like they are from the minority 
doing the baseline level of response you would expect the majority party to be doing and the Democrats would be acting more as a traditional minority party. Does that feel right as a description of the dynamic to you? And if so, how does it change the way Democrats can operate? Well, this is why I like your podcast, because I actually think that's right on. And I think I haven't heard it articulated that way before. But Nancy Pelosi is the smart, practical, pragmatic leader. However, this is the only chamber where Democrats have a majority. And we aren't necessarily looking to our chamber to put forward the thing that is going to pass at the end. We're looking to our chamber. Traditionally, I'm I'm talking about in traditional politics, we would be looking to a Democratic House majority to really push the envelope of what an appropriate, bold response would be. And I think that that's not really a role that we can play easily in the midst of a pandemic and a crisis where every single state of the union has declared an emergency declaration. This is unprecedented. 27 million people unemployed. And so you have these dual pressures of an intransigent administration, a relatively intransigent Senate. And I only say relatively because it's really written itself out of the process. I mean, Mitch McConnell has basically said he's not going to engage on anything. So you've got Mnuchin negotiating with Pelosi and trying to bring the president along. And that is all in the context of this unprecedented moment. We haven't dealt with anything like this. And so we're going to reach depression era levels of unemployment. We have just passed today the number of lives lost, American lives lost during the Vietnam War. And so It's also extremely difficult in this environment then to use some of the procedural maneuverings that you might use when three chambers are negotiating with each other. That's really not what's happening. And then you add on to that the fact that we're remote. And so those procedural maneuvers that we might have used on the floor or with amendments or other ways of sort of moving a bill in a certain direction, we really don't have access to those. So I think they're all dynamics that are real and that are playing in in a way that we're still trying to comprehend and figure out how do we um, how do we get this to be what it really needs to be at this moment. I was talking to Senator Brian Schatz, who's a Democrat from Hawaii about this, and he, he said something to me that I've been thinking about, which is that and I'm quoting him here, Democrats have had to step into the breach to minimize suffering. There are a lot of keyboard pundits who view this as a forfeiture of leverage, and I understand what they're saying. But we have to be very clear. They're talking about using suffering as leverage. That is what the Republicans do, not what we do. And I think it raises the question for Democrats, and even in in particularly your case for, for House progressives, of what is the leverage in this situation? If it is Democrats who bear the responsibility for making sure a bill gets done to prevent human suffering, what leverage do they have to make it the kind of bill that they're proud of and that is sufficient to the scale of the suffering that is before us? Well, I think leverage gets used in all kinds of different ways. You know, um, Steve Scalise called me out on Twitter for saying that we have to be careful not to give away leverage. And Um, When I said that, what I was talking about is the leverage of what Republicans want to do, which is insufficient to the suffering. That is exactly the point, is how do we respond to the scale of the suffering? 
if we are just responding to one piece of it, but we are giving away the thing that Republicans are sort of hanging their hat on, then what brings them back to the table for negotiation? Because as Speaker Pelosi has said to me, as many people have said, this administration continues to be callous and cruel and egotistical and use the briefings to put forward things that aren't even factual. So when you think about somebody doing something because it's the right thing to do, when you think about traditional situations of crisis where everybody sort of pulls together and whoever the ruling party is in the White House, that that person, that individual has this enormous opportunity really to bring people together because that's what people want in a crisis. None of that has happened. And so I think it depends on how you use the word leverage. For me, the leverage is that there is enormous suffering. And if we do not respond with the boldness and the scale that this crisis demands, then that suffering will continue. And that's how I use it. And I think it's important for us to not allow ourselves to be pulled into a place where we don't define the agenda, given that we are the ones that seem to be put in the position of really defining what the solution is going to land at. The dynamics of this are just so strange to me. Let me ask you, I know politicians hate to answer hypotheticals, but but, but let me ask you about some that I think would be revealing. You would think under these conditions, given that it is an election year and given that the president of the United States is held responsible for the condition of the country, that the White House's ask could be summed up in just one word, always more, right? More help, more aid, more aid to states, more aid to the unemployed, more aid to businesses. And that my sense is that has not been true, that it's often been Democrats trying to push funding and authority on a White House that is somewhat resistant at some level to both. So if it were just up to them, if there was no Congress, no nothing, and it was the White House crafting this response, given what you've seen in these negotiations, what do you think they would want left to their own devices? What would their reaction to this be? Well, I think you do have to distinguish between Trump and some of the people around him, and I'm not giving them a break, but I do think that there are some people in the Republican Party, including Republican governors, for example, who are saying something very different than what Trump is saying. If this were just left to Trump, I honestly think that anything that made the stock market move in a positive direction would be the only thing he would do. I think the only reason that we got some of the things we got was because the stock market freaked out. It wasn't because body bags were piling up. And maybe this is uncharacteristically harsh or too harsh, but I don't think that Donald Trump is looking at those things. Now, I did hear that he felt like it hit him closely when he saw somebody he knew got COVID and I don't know if they died or if they just got COVID. So maybe there was something that personally touched him there. But really, I think that the main thing he is concerned about is the economy and the stock market. And so that puts everything in a very different picture. And I think that he would have continued to just channel money into the Fed, into the Federal Reserve, until the moment when it became clear that even that would not hold it up. But by then, Ezra, I think we would have been, you know, even further months down the road. And economists and those who participate in the stock market are not stupid either. And so 
I think that at some point that market would have crashed, but I just don't think that he understands the human toll or trusts science. That's very clear. And so when you have somebody like that leading, I think the answer is as little as possible. And it's a strange thing because he's a political animal too, and you would think that he would know exactly how this could benefit him in his reelection. But it's a very unusual situation where the polling, you know, there was an initial tiny little bump for him, but that's all gone. I mean, he's got the people he had and he's even losing some of those. But this could have been an opportunity for him to shore things up with the with the economy where it was before the pandemic and then with aid and sort of showing leadership from the White House. It could have been a chance for him to really sew it up. But, you know, I think he's lost that chance now. It, I'll, I'll just note on this because I've been working with um, my colleague here, Roger, on, on a piece about this. It is wild how much of a chance there was. If you look at other world leaders, Boris Johnson has seen an 18-point approval bump. Justin Trudeau has seen a 16-point approval bump. Angela Merkel, a 14-point. Scott Morrison, a 34-point. And Trump is up three points. And if you look at him compared to the governors, it looks like that too. I mean, there is a way in which there has clearly been in electorates all around the world a appreciative response to leaders who seem like they know what they're doing, they're taking this seriously, and they're going to navigate through this. And for all Trump's vaunted political genius, he has shown no instinct for just the comfort and the political dividends of competence. Or maybe that's not within his capacities, but it is sometimes I think Democrats twist themselves up in knots thinking about how Trump seems to get out of all these jams. But there's another way in which when what the situation calls for is the simple brass tacks of good governance, he is either not able to see that or not able to provide that. That's right. And I think he's always been able to control the environment, whether it was his reality TV show or whether it's from the White House, you know, sort of using television and bullying and, you know, just sheer fear tactics to control what Republicans in the Senate and those around him do. This is a situation he can't control. The virus is not going to listen to him. He can do whatever he wants. The virus is going to continue its epidemiological trail. And there are going to be effects of that that he has no control over. He can pour money into the Federal Reserve. He can try to push a bunch of money to big corporations without conditions. And it's still not going to slow the spread of the virus. And I think he has not wrapped his head around that. I don't think he's ever been in that situation before. Let me ask you about the reverse hypothetical. If this was this year, an election year, and Nancy Pelosi was House Speaker and Mitch McConnell was Senate Majority Leader and Hillary Clinton were president, we have passed so far about $2.5 trillion in stimulus, as you mentioned. How much, would we, how much would we have passed? How much would Republicans have permitted to pass then? Oh, I think we would have passed much more. If Hillary Clinton were president? Yeah, even if Hillary Clinton were president um, and recognizing that she's she's not where I am on progressive policies, but I'll tell you, you know, paid leave, childcare, you know, a lot of the things, stimulus checks in different ways, state and local government for sure funding, public health funding. I mean, I think that it would have been a very different situation and we would have been fighting other battles. I, I want to be clear, there would have been other things I'm sure that wouldn't have passed. I'm not sure. And it pains me to say this. I'm not sure that we would have pushed back on immigrants as much as we should have. I, I don't know that we would have done what we needed to do on incarceration. I mean, there are problems within the Democratic Party that have been there for a long time. 
And I think they still would have continued to be problems. But I think there's no question we would have pushed more aid more quickly. I agree with that on Clinton herself. But but one thing I was getting at there was that Democrats have done a lot to work to build an economic rescue package in an election year, despite knowing that a Republican is in charge. Whereas I worry that if a Democrat had been in charge, if Hillary Clinton was in charge right now, that McConnell would have barely let anything go through. And that next year, if a Democrat is in charge and we are still in a depression or heavy recession-like scenario, that the window or the capacity to pass economic packages through if Republicans control a branch of government, they are not going to be as willing to work with Democrats as Democrats have been willing to work with them. Well, I think that's true, but I think you have to distinguish between the normal way the Democrats and Republicans act and then what is happening in this crisis. I mean, I just think it's really hard to ignore the deaths that we've had, you know, the body bags that are piling up, the devastation of businesses. There is a cry from Republican and Democratic districts that has got Mitch McConnell being pushed by Republican senators. I mean, you know, when I look at some of the things that have happened, it has been Republican senators who have also been calling for some of this and not as quiet as they normally are and just following Trump. And so I just think this is a different situation. It's hard to hypothesize about this because we've just never seen anything like it. And I would like to believe that the basic suffering of human beings would still be at the top, even for Republicans. And and let's be clear, lots of Republicans are up for tough elections. And so the extent to which it is still a political year and a political process, I think they're obviously, you know, they're they're paying attention to that as well in a different way. So we've passed now a number of economic rescue bills, and the belief is that we're going to be doing more quickly. And it seems to me there's going to be phases in this. There's a sort of initial economic support period. And I want to talk about sort of your idea for that uh, in a second here. And then there's going to be a period of rebuilding or mobilization that is going to have to require some very different thinking. So to, to start with where we are now, you've proposed something substantially more ambitious than what we've done so far in the Paycheck Guarantee Act. Can you talk a bit about what that is and how it differs from the unemployment insurance and loans packages that we've seen so far? Yeah. So the Paycheck Guarantee Act is a proposal that I introduced um, now almost four weeks ago. And the basic concept is we should stop mass unemployment. That has to be a primary goal for the United States. It is actually what other countries have done. It is widely credited. Germany had this in place, put it in place some time ago, coming out of the last recession. And it's widely credited for why Germany has been able to recover quickly. But other countries have put it into place just since COVID hit. So not just European countries like the UK and France and other places, but Singapore, South Korea, Malaysia. And the idea is that we want to stop people from going on to unemployment and keep workers tied to their jobs. In the United States, that's even more important because when a worker loses their job, they also lose their health care if they had employer-covered health care. And you know, Ezra, that I've been on this podcast, not with you, but with your colleagues, talking about Medicare for All. It's exactly why I think that we should not have health care tied to jobs because you shouldn't lose it when you lose a job. But that's the situation we're in now. So Paycheck Guarantee Act says the federal government would actually guarantee paychecks and benefits 
up to a salary cap of $100,000 and would also give a 25% maintenance cost for all the operations that a business has to take care of, not just rent and utilities, but everything else that they have to do as well. Those costs are fixed often and they just need to continue. And the idea is that this would go straight from the federal government to a business. No using a network of banks that are notorious for, you know, prioritizing big clients over small clients, not dealing with the unbanked, not dealing with minority businesses. But this would go directly from the IRS, which already has your paperwork. So the only thing needed would be a sworn declaration from the business that you've lost revenue because of COVID. And then the calculation would be made by the IRS, a three-month amount, and it would be scalable for however much revenue you've lost. So let's say you're a restaurant and you've got you know 30% in takeout. And so you're kind of making it, but you've lost 70% of your revenue. There's no way you can keep your full staff. This would actually give you 70% of the grant amount so that you could at least stay going, a going concern. Now, it would also be retroactive because we should have done this right at the beginning, but recognizing that we've already got a lot of people on unemployment, this would allow people a way to come back off of the unemployment rolls and be back on payroll, continue to get their benefits. And I think that at the end of the day, if you're thinking about reopening, job number one has to be to beat the virus. The economy and public health are one in the same in this case. And if we want to beat the virus, then we want people to stay home. And if we want people to stay home and pay attention to public health guidance, then we got to give them some money to take care of their paychecks. So that's the basic idea behind it. And it's gotten incredible support from 100 economists just wrote a letter. Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stieglitz has been key for me in helping to put this together. Uh, Former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen has endorsed the proposal And it's gotten a tremendous amount of support as we've rolled it out, but it obviously is a, uh, it's a substantial idea. My belief is it really needs to be included in the package because it not only protects us now, it helps us to recover quickly so that workers don't have to go out and try to find a job. Businesses can quickly open and get back to work if that is to be a reality in the future. In the Senate, Senator Josh Hawley, who's a Republican, has a similar but somewhat less generous version of this kind of proposal, um, which we've also seen in some other countries. Have you been working with him at all on it? Yeah, we rolled our proposals out almost at the same time. And it was really interesting to see, you know, a conservative senator and and the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus roll out the same idea. And I think the numbers are all things we can discuss. So I reached out to him. Our offices have talked. And then we have we sent our proposal over to the Senate. And so they had all of our detail when they rolled out their proposal, the Senate Democrats, and a really interesting group of Democrats, Mark Warner, Bernie Sanders, Blumenthal, and Doug Jones, sort of representing all the parts along the caucus. And we are doing the same in, in the House, building that same sort of coalition, which has been which has been great. So we're all talking about it. And I think that the thing to think about here is that, remember, if we pull people off of the unemployment rolls, that means we're not paying unemployment insurance. So a lot of the money we've already appropriated would essentially be seen as savings, and those would just be plowed back into this. So Mark Zandi at Moody's, who 
you know, used to work for McCain and and uh, is quite a respected economist on both sides of the aisle. He's been working with me on a on a cost estimate and his initial estimates, and he's still going through it some more, but his initial estimates are that it would cost us far less than what we've already spent or appropriated on the Paycheck Protection Program. And we would stop mass unemployment, which provides huge benefits that he hasn't even calculated the savings around those down the road. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about this dimension of it? Because I think this is subtle in the choice we're making here, but important. So right now, the main way we are dealing with payroll is um, through giving loans directly to businesses. So we know they've had a lot of trouble accessing them. And then we have an unemployment insurance expansion, which is, I want to say, extraordinarily generous in its design. I think it's really to the credit of Senators Wyden and Bennett that they got that $600 boost for low-income workers in there. But it's been very hard for many people to access. But either way, putting that much into unemployment insurance, you're actually creating incentive for people to become um, to become unemployed, I'm sorry, in order to get that backup. Whereas if you had something like this in, they would remain attached to their business, even if their business was not able to pay them during that period. What's the advantage to keeping them attached to their employer rather than letting them go on to unemployment insurance? Well, there's so many. I mean, I think that there's something we don't talk about all the time, which is the mental psyche of somebody knowing that they have the certainty of a job at the end of this. There's so much uncertainty And so many of the people that I talk to are like, you know, they don't want to go on to unemployment insurance, actually. They're they're proud of the work they do. They want to stay working and they want to know they're going to have a job coming out of this. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety of going into the unemployment system. Add to that that a lot of people that are now on unemployment or filing unemployment claims have never been on unemployment before. I have two kids well, I can't call them kids really, but one 23-year-old and one 40-year-old, they both had to apply for unemployment. They both have different challenges. And uh, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I think that these systems, the unemployment systems, were not built for 2020 and a massive disaster of this nature. They were mostly built in the 1970s. They haven't been processing these this level of claims. So there's all kinds of issues just in terms of getting money through the unemployment system. But beyond that, we know that when people go into unemployment, particularly black and brown folks and lower wage workers, they have a much harder time getting back into the employment market. There's a racial disproportionality aspect to unemployment that isn't addressed. We also know that even if you expanded unemployment, and my colleague Mark Pocan has uh, a proposal to also expand work share programs substantially, which would also keep workers on payrolls, though perhaps not for as long. And the reality is that for workers to keep that relationship with an employer is just more valuable than perhaps we even give it credit for. From the business side, if you don't have to go through and rehire and retrain and um, all of those other things, that will be a huge advantage if you even survive. Most of these businesses are not surviving. They are having to close their doors. Even the ones that have gotten a PPP loan in my district, many of them are saying, I'm not going to take it because it's a loan. I don't know that it's going to be forgiven. There is no automatic stabilizer or continuance indicator, which we do have in our bill, by the way, economic indicators. So it would continue until the economy recovered to a certain level so that Congress doesn't have to come back to pass each version of this. 
So there are all kinds of benefits to keeping workers tied to jobs that you just don't get on unemployment. Right now, there's a proposal to subsidize COBRA. And I know many of my friends and labor unions and elsewhere are enthusiastic about this proposal. But I will just say that is the most expensive way to provide healthcare coverage. I would prefer to have employers continue to provide it, but also have what I will be introducing later this week, a Medicare crisis proposal that would expand Medicare for anyone who ends up staying on unemployment insurance and then expanding Medicaid for anyone who is uninsured and near the poverty line. I mean, there are lots of different ways to address this, but there are so many consequences to sending people onto unemployment. And why wouldn't we want to be the party of making sure that workers stay in their jobs, continue to get paychecks, and continue to stimulate consumer demand to the extent that they're able to pay their rent, their mortgage, their put food on the table, all those other things. One thing that I find makes it very hard to think through the correct kinds of economic support and rescue packages right now is there is no agreed on or even, I think, widely shared vision of what the economy is going to look like a year from now. And I don't think I've ever operated in an era where that is true, even in the financial crisis, when we were dealing with something truly terrifying the economy itself was the same. I mean, economists would always tell you this. We had the same number of factories, the same number of workers. We were just dealing with a financial panic and we had to stop the panic and just like get people doing the things we knew they could still do. But we may not have a vaccine here for 18 months. We may not have it for two years. We may not have it for longer than that. I mean, hopefully we will, but we may not. And that means that a lot of these businesses are not going to come back, right? A particular lot of small businesses, restaurants are not built to only be half full if that's how we reopen them. Obviously, we're not going to have live events for some time. So when you think forward into the economy, when you try to imagine what we are building towards or trying to make possible in a year, is it to freeze the economy we had three months ago in place so we can reopen it? Is it to smooth a transition to something else, to choose sectors where they're not going to come back and build something in their place? I mean, how do you think about what this is leading to as opposed to simply the suffering we're trying to alleviate in the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think about it as stasis, like returning to some level of stasis. I don't call it normal because I think normal is a strange term for many folks who were suffering before, quite honestly. I mean, you have an economy where 60% of the population didn't even have 400 bucks in their bank account to deal with an emergency. So, but there was a level of stasis that I think we should try to maintain. I think that that could be a six to eight month process for us to get to a level of stasis where you could make any decisions about what the next year is going to look like. I think we're going to face 10% unemployment rates at least for a year, um, even after that stasis, because businesses are going to have to completely change the way that they do businesses. We will continue to see elevated unemployment rates. I mean, my goal would be to try to get down to 5% with a program like the Paycheck Guarantee Act, but even that will be elevated. And so, you know, I think people have to think about this as dramatically changing the way we interact because if we don't have, and, and these are tied together, if we don't have an extensive testing, contact tracing, 
and isolation capability, then we will continue to see second and third waves of infection that will stop us from returning to any level of being able to predict the future. And there is a lot we don't know about this virus. But one thing we do know is that you know, let's say that the reported cases take us to about 90% that are uninfected. I can't say that for sure because I think there's a lot of unreported incidents of infection. But if if we are at around 90% or even in a worst case, 80% of people who are uninfected, that means that you really need to have testing. Antibody testing is not going to do it because we're not looking at immunity here. We are looking at knowing when somebody gets the virus because it's such a big population that doesn't have any immunity. So you've got to have testing. You've got to have very dedicated contact tracing. And you have to have the ability to isolate once you find that. That also means very strict and stringent requirements from LNI departments on businesses, from OSHA around worker standards. I mean, it requires a tremendous amount of coordination, which frankly, I don't think we have because it's not coming from the federal government. States are doing their best, but it's very, you know, you start a business in Washington state, let's say in the aerospace industry, that business may need parts from Ohio. But if Ohio is not under the same stringency guidelines or reopening guidelines, you're going to have very, very different ways of thinking about this. So there's no question in my mind that this is, we're looking at 18 months minimum for us to even see what a quote new normal or a new stasis might look like. That is also an opportunity though for us to put in place some things without which we have suffered. Things like paid leave, things like childcare, because had we had some of those safety nets, we would be able to deal with this crisis much better. Now, whether or not we can do that is a different question, but I do think it's an opportunity. And if you think about some of the great programs that we have passed, whether it's Social Security or other things, they have come out of moments of crisis often. And perhaps this is one of them where we can fundamentally restructure some of what our economy and our communities and our country have been centered on and and make it more equitable. I'm worried that that's not going to be the case. So I want to be clear that I I have a lot of concerns and sleepless nights about that. But that is my hope. Let me try to live in that future for a minute. Let's say we passed the Paycheck Guarantee Act tomorrow and it has provisions within it for renewability. And so let's say that we are under a regime like that for at least, let's call it nine, 10 months. And then at the end of that period, we begin to reopen because we have the contact tracing and mass testing in in play, hopefully, um, and maybe some therapeutics that are helping, even if it's not a vaccine. And so we begin to poke our head up. And what we see, which I think is going to be very likely, is that a lot of the businesses people are attached to are actually dead, that the amount of death they're under at this point or the way the economy is now structured. I mean, just as a very easy example, it is likely that most office jobs where people can work from home, they're going to be encouraged to do that for a really long time. I'm one of them. There are all kinds of businesses built around where offices like mine are in San Francisco built to serve those office workers. If only 40% of those office workers are back in a year, those businesses aren't coming back. And so 
when we do that, and some version of that is going to happen, what do we do then? Um, that, that's the question I have between life support and, and, and rebuilding. Um, if we get people through this and alleviate the economic suffering along the way, how do we create the conditions to rebuild? Um, and how do we... I don't know. How do we allow new things to start along the way? How do we make sure there's some growth happening as soon as it possibly can? Because that's a concern I hear from economically minded people with some of these proposals that freeze a lot of things currently in place, that we're going to wake up and then we're going to have this huge overhang as we have to work through all these business failures and things that are no longer viable, and that that will um, make the pace of the recovery even slower at that back end. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are these different phases. If we had the Paycheck Guarantee Act in place, we would protect a lot of jobs and a lot of businesses. I'm worried that if we don't do it quickly, it may be too late. But let's say we do it in this next package and we're able to protect some of that. There will come a time when we start to reopen partially. The The Paycheck Guarantee is actually scalable. So if a business can open 70%, but they're still losing 30%, they can apply. If they reopen and then they have to reshutter, they can get money from that. And so hopefully that provides enough of a transition. And then what you have to do is you have to do the kind of investment recovery that we should have done a long time ago. I would start with broadband and infrastructure. If we're going to live in an environment where everybody is going to need to be ready to have this happen again, where we're working from home, we should be investing in that kind of broadband infrastructure. We should be investing in water systems so that people can wash their hands in a healthcare pandemic. We should be fixing our roads and bridges. As long as people are able to work in proximity, we can start to invest in that kind of recovery that puts people back to work and that gets people, you know, whether it's investing in green buildings. We have had a hold on a lot of construction but there is a lot of construction that needs to be done and we can start to do all of that work. Our schools, you know, how can we invest in our schools and our community colleges and perhaps even train people towards some of the work that will need to be done in this new recovery? There is clearly for the contact tracing, this is sort of in the transition stage, there is a workforce that has to be developed to do that contact tracing. That is an enormous workforce that will put people back to work. So, I mean, I think that there are that I'm in some ways, I'm less concerned about that piece because we're more accustomed to the recovery pieces, even though some of the situational pieces may be different in terms of how people do their work will depend on where we are in that process. And that's why I say job number one is to beat the virus and to beat the virus, we got to stay home and we got to get the contact tracing and testing in place until we are ready to go back to work. Once those things happen, then I feel like we're in less uncharted territory. And hopefully we won't sort of devolve back into partisan squabbling over where to spend that money. It's certainly a possibility, but we know what we need to do at that point to recover. And hopefully we'll have a president and a Senate and a, and a Congress that is willing to do that. I want to ask some questions about how progressives develop the institutional power to be able to influence that president, Congress, and, and Senate. I think at, at this moment, if you're going to have a Democrat as president, it is likelier than not to be Joe Biden. Um, you were you endorsed Bernie Sanders in the primary um, and then endorsed Joe Biden this week. Bernie Sanders lost. 
Why do you think he lost and what does the left need to learn from him falling short? You know, I endorsed him in January. And I'll t- I got to tell you, I was I, I really thought he had a shot because he was winning in state after state. I think that obviously there was real work that didn't get done with the African-American community in the way that we had hoped. And I think that was an important lesson when we went into the South. But I, I also think that there was this fear that got whipped up by uh, a lot of more establishment Democrats about what a Bernie Sanders presidency would mean. And I think that the question of electability became sort of not about who's winning states and what voters even think. It wasn't even an ideological battle at that point because some of the policies that we were pushing, including Medicare for All, were winning even in states where Biden won. Even, you know, 60, 70 percent of voters who voted for other candidates, whether it was Biden or Buttigieg or whoever, actually supported Medicare for All. But there was this irrational fear that was poked and prodded and and inflamed about a Bernie Sanders presidency and a Bernie Sanders on the ticket. And Donald Trump has raised the stakes of why it's so important for us to win back the White House. People now see what kind of a president he is and what he's done. And so the stakes were high. And I think that um, people made their, I would say, educated choices, but influenced by a lot of that chatter And however you want to call people that have power institutionally, they had an interest in many cases in keeping Bernie Sanders off the ticket. And so I think it was a combination of a lot of things. You know, there were things Bernie could have done differently. Perhaps there were ways in which Bernie could have spoken to a wider audience earlier and not only sort of pushed with young people and immigrants and even a bunch of Trump voters, but really reached out to Democrats in different ways? Absolutely. I'm sure he could have done all of those things better. But I also think that there was a concerted effort to make sure that he was he was not going to be on the ticket. And it worked. How much does the left need to figure out how to manage the fear that can arise around its agenda? And as is somebody who, I mean, you and I've been down the healthcare road a lot before, I would take literally any national healthcare plan like anybody would want to put in front of me. But the big divide on healthcare politics, in my view, is how you see fear and what you think you need to do about it. And so, for instance, in the primary, obviously, there was a debate over Medicare for all with sort of one side saying, we're going to do this in a big bang way where it's going to cancel people's plans and move them on to something. Um, versus people like Buttigieg and, and and others, what became the moderate position that you know you can do an option, but you can't take things from people because you're going to make them afraid. And if you make them afraid in advance, they're not going to vote for you, and you're never going to have a chance to to put that into play. How does the left make an agenda that is ambitious and dramatic and an overhaul of a society that is in many deep ways unjust? Not scary to people who are change averse with things that are important to them and to their lives? Well, the thing about fear and being change averse is you have to ask who is afraid and who is change averse, because I would actually argue that Democrats have never had a policy that is so popular with our base as Medicare for all. I mean, it it is incredibly popular, far more popular, actually, than the Affordable Care Act. So I don't think that the base actually has a fear that is um, 
not answerable if we had everybody on the same page. And I'll give you an analogy on this, and it's around impeachment. You know, a lot of us on the left came out for impeachment earlier than the Speaker and the caucus did, and we were pushing hard for it. And you could argue that we never would have gotten to the place of impeachment without our voices being there to organize and to push. And so there's, I really believe in there being a place for different voices at different times. But, you know, we weren't moving the public because even though people told me they thought Donald Donald Trump should be impeached, I had a lot of Democrats who were saying to me, well, you know, it's going to hurt us at the end and we're just not sure. The minute that Speaker Pelosi came out and said, we need to impeach him, and and so did Adam Schiff and, and others that were sort of in the leadership around that issue, the polling changed dramatically, dramatically. And it showed me that people were actually ready to go there before, but they are listening to the people that are in positions of power. And I would say the same is true on healthcare, that when you have the former vice president, presidential candidates suddenly get afraid, I would argue, because they're getting a lot of donations and there's a lot of research funded by for-profit insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies whose only interest is in keeping the status quo. They don't want a public option any more than they want Medicare for all, by the way. But That's their only interest. They are the ones driving the fear. The voters actually have been very smart on this because healthcare is such a pocketbook issue for people. It's such a real issue when GoFundMe is the, the, you know, the main insurance program that people are relying on. And you have a third of the American population that is either underinsured or without insurance or simply can't afford their, their costs. That is a serious issue. And so they are actually ready. I don't think it's a question of the public being afraid. I think it is a question of leaders who have positional power being driven by those who have money, the interests that have money and the interests who want the status quo, trying to say that people are afraid. That is not my experience, including with Republicans, including in swing districts, including in rural districts. There is a group of people with positional power and status quo interests who want to demagogue the issue. And I think we just need courage because I have found over and over again that if you just explain the issue, you can get rid of a, you can get rid of a lot of the fears. You can acknowledge the fear and you can you know you can even you know negotiate on some of the details of the proposal and the transition and you know some people said to me oh Pramila your plan transitions too quickly it's 2 years it should be longer it should be 4 years i said listen if we ever get to that point i'm happy to talk about those details with you but let's be clear that we need to address cost and we need to address overall coverage guaranteed coverage. And if you don't address those two, then don't tell me that your proposal is going to make things better. It won't. I mean, so this seems to me to be uh, a question that comes up a lot in the fear debate, right? Which is, is the public afraid of a change that they keep not voting for? Or are they just being whipped up to be afraid of it? And, and I was interested, by the way, you put this because, I mean, is it your view that in this presidential primary, Every Democrat running who came from a red state or came from a purple state, so Michael Bennett, Amy Klobuchar, Bullock, et cetera, et cetera, every one of them who is from one of those competitive states said they thought Medicare for all was a political loser and they didn't support it. Everyone. 
Is it your view that all of them are just bought by insurance interests and they have status quo positioning for that reason? Or do you think that there's something that they're responding to in their constituency that maybe they're wrong about, but that they think is true? Oh, I I totally think that there's something they're responding to. um, And I, you know, and I wouldn't want to say that they're all just bought by insurance companies. But what I'm saying is that the narrative that they are listening to is driven by a set of special interests. And that when you have leadership and power, your job, in my view, and this goes to my view as an organizer, your job, in my view, is to actually make the case and help people through the fears that they have. I remember hearing a story about Paul Wellstone voting against the war in Iraq, even though his constituents did not agree with him. And I remember the story, and I hope this is a true story. I never went back to research it, but somebody was telling me this story who was close to him, that uh, Paul Wellstone said, look, my job is to lead. And I think that we have too many people in office who have forgotten that their job is to lead. And I say to my constituents all the time, I am not afraid to talk to people who disagree with me. In fact, I seek them out. I am not afraid to make my arguments to people. I'm not afraid to adjust the details of a proposal, because honestly, I don't think that those details are are the thing that catch people up. I think what people want to hear is the overall argument for why they are going to be better off at the end of the day and a real acknowledgement and some compassion for what they are going through and what they fear. And if you start there, my belief is that you can really make a strong case for people to believe in what you're doing, but if even if they don't agree with you all the way, that they will still support you because they feel respected by you. So the idea that you would just, you know, give in to what people fear is not to me leadership. And it's why I decided to run because I wanted to try and see if there was a different way of leading and using these positions, not just to follow, but to be first to a good idea, to help shape it, to help put it out there into the public. And there are other people that do this, by the way. I'm not trying to exceptionalize myself in any way, but I think that we've lost that idea of leadership in public office. And we've gotten too used to following polls and, and lobbyists who have a lot of money and stand outside your door and try to make their voices heard not try, get their voices heard when other people are trying to make their voices heard and they're not being listened to. Let me ask you this question from the institutional direction, because we've been talking here sort of about the public communication. How do you sell an idea like this? But you are co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus. It's the single largest um, caucus of progressives who have hold power really anywhere in American government. And the criticism I hear from people on the left of the House Progressive Caucus is that the moderates and the special interests and the insurance industry, they will go to the mat to kill bills so that leadership is really afraid that if they don't get them on board, it's not going to go through. And that the House Progressive Caucus is too willing to take half a loaf. It signs on to things that are, are overly compromised. And I guess the simplest way to put this refrain is that I hear a lot of people wish that the House Progressive Caucus would act more like the Freedom Caucus and take more of a burn-it-down strategy if they didn't get what they want. That's obviously not the strategy um, you and your co-chair have taken and and your members. And tell me about why. Tell me about the sort of um, institutional incentives that point towards one one direction on that or another. Yeah. 
And it also is different depending on the situation. But when I came in in 2017, I have to tell you, I was kind of stunned by the lack of infrastructure. I'm kind of an infrastructure gal. I think about things from an infrastructure perspective. And there was, you know, the Progressive Caucus had very little staff, very few staff. There had been an effort. I guess there had been a Democratic study group some many years ago. Newt Gingrich ended it because it was actually effective in getting real research and data to members. It, it was not just for Progressive Caucus members, but it was actual data instead of listening to the lobbyists that's right outside your door. That didn't exist anymore. Our staff infrastructure was pretty much decimated. We hadn't raised dues in years. Keith Ellison had been really key in trying to change some of this, and he had started along with Mark Pocan. And then on the outside, I found the same thing that I found when I was in the state legislature for two years, which is this remarkable lack of cohesion of progressive groups around a single agenda. Everybody's sort of advocating for their own little slice of things and no real coordination of that. And then you also have the problem of, you know, a lot of people who are drawn to politics are not the people who are protesting in the streets. I was sort of an earlier version of that, and there were some before me as well. But I think that it's a lot easier to be on the outside and to be pure and to push for the things you really believe in and never have to make compromises versus going into elected office. But I believe we give up a lot of power and that elected office is a platform for organizing. It's another platform for organizing, one that organizers have shunned to our detriment. So I felt we needed to really do a lot of infrastructure building. And so Mark and I together worked to um, help build the Progressive Caucus Center and the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. Those are 501c3s and 501c4s that we serve on the board of, and the whole board really worked to build those entities, and they are really proving their effectiveness right now. We raised our dues. We started making sure that questionnaires had the Progressive Caucus priorities on them. We are still working on kind of transitioning members who were members of the Progressive Caucus, but perhaps hadn't signed on to every issue that we had, and we're still working on that piece. But there was a lot of infrastructure that need to be built. And then you've got to have the numbers to block any bill. The Freedom Caucus had a relatively small number of people, but it was actually enough. You don't need a lot. You, you know, you need 18 or 20, depending on the issue. If you have Republicans who are going to vote for your bill and you're in the majority, but the Democratic majority has decided that they're going to go with moderates and Republicans so that they have enough votes to pass the bill, you have no leverage. So you really have to look at the situation and figure out where do you have the leverage to block something? And I will tell you honestly that we don't always have the number of members that we would need. And I am a, I believe in being strategic. I believe that if you don't have a couple of things, but one, I believe that courage is a muscle and you have to learn to flex it. And so there is value in doing things, even if you're going to lose. And so there are moments to do that. It is also important to think about when you want to win or when you signal weakness in what you do. And so we sort of look at all of those things, but I would argue that we have been very effective on a number of things that don't get noticed uh, as much as they probably should. But, you know, how we leveraged our power with inside and outside groups around Speaker Pelosi being elected as speaker, as speaker, 
to get Katie Porter on financial services, AOC on financial services. I mean, we pushed for 40% representation of Progressive Caucus members on key committees. Kind of arcane, right? But if you think about who controls money, it's those key A-list committees like Ways and Means and Financial Services. Um, And so changing the composition of those structures that are inherently geared to keep the status quo in place was a big priority of ours. We also have opposed a number of other bills. We actually opposed the budget amendment, you know, coming to a to a budget agreement, and they had to pull that vote from the floor because we opposed it. Now, in the end, they ended up getting their their budget numbers anyway because they used another procedural piece. And so I think I think there are a lot of different things that go into the calculation and I get why people are frustrated. I don't think that the Freedom Caucus is necessarily I think it's a it's a easy analogy, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good analogy because it is quite different in terms of the number of people that they had that were ready to go there and also in terms of the relationship to you know, the rest of the caucus and a whole bunch of other factors. But Mark Meadows and I have talked at some length about about those different pieces. And he said they studied everything the Progressive Caucus did when they went into the minority. And we certainly have looked at the things that they did um, when they were in the majority. To just draw out what you said there for people not as deep in the arcane Congress stuff here, um, the Freedom Caucus, I forget how many members it has, but it's nowhere near the 95 members uh, in the House that the House Progressive Caucus has. But the Freedom Caucus's members, what I understand you to be saying here, sort of almost every single one of them was willing to nuke the place. And the House Progressive Caucus has had a more inclusive approach to membership, and many of the members in it are not comfortable with the kind of obstructive tactics that on the one hand get you a lot of leverage, but on the other hand, you actually have to be willing to shoot the hostage and take the blame for that. That's right. And it doesn't really matter how many members are in the caucus. Like, I'm fine with having a more inclusive progressive caucus, though we have been trying to crack down on that a little bit for a bunch of different reasons. But within that caucus, if you had 20 members every time who were willing to stand up and say, no, we're go- we're not going to vote for this, even in a really difficult situation, knowing all of the things that can come down on you if you vote no on an important leadership priority, that would be a different situation. We don't always have that. And it's interesting because on, on immigration, for example, we tend to be the majority of the votes saying no on things and being willing to stand up where other uh, ethnic caucuses may not. And it's partly because it's progressive members who often lead on these issues. But you do need to have a sufficient block. Um, And it also depends on the bill, because like I said, if you've got Republicans who are going to vote for the bill, you can vote no all you want, but you need the number you need goes up dramatically. But let me ask you about a a specific example that will be coming up. I mean, we've talked primarily about two potential bills here, the Paycheck Guarantee Act, which is um, we've talked about at length. And then you also mentioned um, this bill to create a Medicare crisis program such that people who need health insurance in this period can join Medicare. And you're introducing that proposal this week. Both those strike me as very popular proposals. And maybe we'll let's focus on the Medicare one because the Paycheck Guarantee Act is bigger and uh, and I could see why it might not work for this kind of strategy. But 
What would be the rebuttal of members of the House Progressive Caucus to you if you said, you know, I think that we should say we're just not going to vote for the next stimulus bill if it doesn't let people get on Medicare? I mean, we know, as you mentioned earlier, putting aside sort of debates about polling for true Medicare for all, letting people join Medicare, particularly in a crisis, it pulls through the roof. It's unbelievably popular. And so if it was just that one demand and the and the the simple statements that we will vote for the bill as long as this is in there, we want to help people and this is our leverage. What's the counter argument on that? What are people worried leadership will do to them? And, and why would leadership do anything to them? I think in this situation, the thing would be, let's imagine it's a $1.5 or $2 trillion package. And let's imagine that they put stimulus checks in there. And let's imagine that they expand rental, rental assistance and assistance for homelessness. And they put significant resources for state and local governments in. And let's imagine that they put more money for, you know, you name it, your top priority, right, that is in there. Because progressives and, and Democrats in general have a lot of things that we are trying to do. And so if you just say, well, you have to vote no on this because, you know, it doesn't expand health care, a lot of members will not be comfortable with that because they are getting other priorities that they wanted in there. And so that is the hardest part is if it's a process or an insufficiency argument, it becomes much harder, much easier if there is something genuinely bad in a bill. So we have no problem whipping votes on the NDAA. Or, That's the National Defense Authorization Act. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Th- I, I hate it when people go into Congress speak. I, I apologize. But it's money for war in my mind. That's how you describe this thing. So we have no problem whipping no on that. Um, now, I will say that that gets support from the other side. And so we still don't defeat it because they come to a bipartisan agreement. And I think that's the other thing people have to understand is that, you know, we can say no, but if we do, it also pushes people to then court the other side and it gets worse in the process. On the NDAA last time, we actually made it significantly better because we held our support and because we worked. It was both. We both worked with them to try to make it better and then ultimately withheld our support at the very end. But, you know, those are difficult choices to make when there's nothing bad in the bill. So if if it's clear how horrendous it is, it's much easier to whip a no. It will be very hard in the middle of a crisis pandemic to whip a no. But I'm not saying that's impossible, by the way, because I think that there is a real concern at this point about the insufficiency of our response. And I think if there isn't enough in this next package, our members may be there. Now, we don't deal with the fact that if there are a lot of Republicans that are willing to vote for it, we just don't have the same leverage. We may not have enough members then. What is striking about this conversation, which I really, by the way, appreciate you kind of getting this level of tactical detail and and, and coalitional detail, is that in a way it mirrors what we were talking about with the Democratic Party writ broadly at the beginning of this conversation, which is to say that because Democrats in general and then progressive Democrats in particular want to use government to help people, it is somewhat harder for them to use their leverage in a way that would shut the government down from helping people. It's an asymmetry that the party faces against Republicans in general, but even that the minority of the party faces against itself, that in the same way that it's hard for, um, you know, 
Democrats to act like Republicans. It's hard for progressive Democrats to act like the Freedom Caucus because it's just harder for Democrats to say, no, I'm going to stop the government from helping people in an effort to try to get it to help more people. The logic of that is is a stranger form of logic. Yes, I think that is well said. We are ultimately very interested in governing And I'm glad we are. I'm glad to be a party that is interested in governing and generally in helping people. However, I'm also an organizer, and I do think that we need to elect more people that are willing to be bold, willing to take leadership, and that we have to build the institutional structures to support those organizing efforts, not only outside, but inside. And so I'm really focused on trying to do all of those things and also helping people to understand and lift the view of government. Because I think that as long as people think the government isn't going to help them or isn't relevant to what they're doing, they're not going to be engaged. And we lose when people aren't engaged. And so if we as representatives of government can use these platforms to organize and to really speak with our constituents and to be everywhere and to listen to people and to help explain things and to help lead and push and be strategic, that will help us to build our democracy overall. And I think progressives win when people are really engaged. Let me ask you this from the organizer perspective then. One thing that seems to me to be something the really good organizers in politics do is they understand that policy is a symbolic form of communication. Democrats in broad terms are very transactional about policy. There's a lot of things they want to get and a lot of sort of complicated little programs in there and and changes to regulations and, and, and this and that. And that's important. That's important for governance. But when you're trying to actually organize people, they need something to organize around, not, um, you know, a, an omnibus bill. And one thing that has been striking to me, even just covering Democrats on these various economic rescue packages, is there isn't really anything like that. There is a grab bag of proposals of varying levels of quality that most people don't know, and it's all happening very fast. And it's one reason I'm curious about why there's not more organizing around a couple big demands that Democrats are willing to go to the mat for. Um, Again, to me, something like the Medicare crisis bill makes a lot of sense because also people can grok that, right? They can get a sense of what the fight is actually about, whereas aid to states and localities is unbelievably important, but you're not going to build a movement around it. Democrats are treating this very much as governance, but for all the talk of organizing here in the party, there actually is not that much of an organizing approach to policy debates. Yeah. I mean, I think we don't have a lot of organizers on the inside. That's just the truth. I hope that's changing. Um, But you know, there aren't there aren't a lot of people who have done that. Now, I will say that what we tried to do with the progressive caucus demands is we have four categories. You have no idea how hard it was to get everything into um, four main categories. But, you know, can we take and elevate one or two and get agreement on them? That is what we're working to do. I do think healthcare is uh, a good one, but the challenge is there are a lot of progressive partners who are pushing for COBRA subsidies. And so even there, it is just a very diverse tent of people. And, you know, I think we've done a really good job of paycheck guarantee, but it's a big proposal, as you say. And so it's a little harder. But that is exactly what we're working towards now is, 
you know, are there a couple of things that we can say if these things aren't in the final bill? I think we will unveil a Democratic bill that is that probably has a lot of things that people will be happy about. The question is what ends up in the final bill. Where do you put your marker in terms of you say, okay, this is it. And we need a little bit more work to corral our members. And it will be very hard to have members go against aid to state and local governments, because even though it doesn't move the public, it has a huge contingency of governors on both sides of the aisle behind it. So you're right. And it is the the beauty of this very, very messy system that um, has me very frustrated sometimes, but also has me totally intrigued about how how we build, a, you know, a more unified, a stronger, more courageous, more flexible left that doesn't function only through organizing on the outside, which I find incredibly important. It's my background and my history, but also is thinking about organizing on the inside. Very little thought that goes into that. Let me ask you about something I see coming down the pike that, in my view, is going to be the central challenge to progressive governance, even if Democrats win in November, which is the return of deficit hawkery. So Mitch McConnell started talking about the the deficit all of a sudden. Um, one fight that the Progressive Caucus lost was to try to keep Nancy Pelosi and Democrats from imposing pay-go rules, which is to say rules were in within House rules. You have to pay for everything um, that you spend or uh, you know offset all tax cuts with revenue increases. Joe Biden has a big fiscal hawk dimension to him and has talked about this on the trail. And then the thing that really struck me today was Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve chair, saying that he thought, and, and this, the quote is reasonably soon, that it'd be time to, to move back to getting our fiscal house in order. Um, quote reasonably soon, and it seems very likely to me that we're going to that even if Democrats win in November, what will happen is there will be four years where Republicans govern as if deficits don't matter, and the and then there's a fiscal emergency in which deficits really don't matter given coronavirus, and then as soon as Democrats are back in power, not only will it be Republicans saying deficits matter, but even within the Democratic Party, leadership tends to be much more. I would frankly say even behind where the economics profession is on this, but they, they they tend to be more comfortable with the politics and the logic of deficit reduction. And so how are you thinking about that coming fight? Because it's clearly going to come. Yeah, it really drives me crazy. We are trying to reframe this because it's not about the deficits. It's about what you spend the money on. Is it an investment in the future? Just to talk about deficits is is ludicrous because we all do things where we take a bunch of money and we put it into something, whether it's a kid's education or a house or whatever it is, even though it costs us a lot of money because we believe that it is going to help us in the long run. And so I think that's what we have to reframe things to be. And we've been doing a lot of work to talk about austerity politics I think coming out of coronavirus, there is a real chance, and I talk about it every single town hall where I talk about coronavirus, you know, the austerity politics that led us to this place where we would be in much better shape to deal with this virus and the effects of it if we had a public health system that had been invested in, if we had a healthcare system that was universal coverage, if we had, if we had, if we had. And so I think that if we can continue to reframe the argument. And of course, we have the ammunition now of Republicans putting $2 trillion into tax cuts. And so, 
you know, I think that they sort of gave away the argument that they were the fiscally conservative party. That's just not true. Um, but Democrats have to be willing to make a different argument than, hey, we're more fiscally conservative than you. That's not a successful argument. I think that that is an old argument from neoliberals that has not been helpful to us at all, is really destructive. And I think we just continue to push back on it. I think it's a good place to end. So um, let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books that you would recommend to the audience that have influenced you? I would say one that I have read and reread is The Book of Joy. And it's a conversation between Archbishop Desmond Tutu and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And it is just incredible. It's such a beautiful conversation. It makes me think, it makes me smile. It has a piece in there that is about the difference between optimism and hope, that optimism is temporal and ephemeral, and that hope is unshakable and it's in your belly, not just in your head. So that's one. Another that I really loved is uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen's book, The Sympathizer. He's got another one also called The Refugees, which was also good, but I just found it fascinating because it really got into the psyche of an immigrant. And it's a very complicated story, but I, I really loved that book. And I think he's an amazing, amazing writer. And then the third is a book of poetry. I usually have a nonfiction, a fiction, and a book of poetry on my bedside. And I, depending on what I feel like, I dip into each one. But um, I just love Rumi. And so I go to Rumi a lot. And any one of Rumi's anthologies, I think, are powerful for everything that we go through as humans on a day-to-day -day basis. Let me ask you about one of those uh, recommendations. I actually have the Book of Joy. and Oh, yeah. I don't, know how, I, I don't know how you can say, like, I tried to start reading this conversation between the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu and just, you know, couldn't get through it. <laughs> I got lost. So I clearly need to pick it up again. Um, and I feel like a bad person now. But this is a moment, I think, politically... And then you layer on top of a lot of dysfunction and disappointment and just awfulness in our politics. You layer on top coronavirus and the difficulty of the situation we're in. And I think that there's, in my experience of myself, but also of just people I talk to, there's an almost kind of depression settling in on the society, right? A kind of hopelessness. And being trapped inside, right, the way you sacrifice right now and help is just you don't do anything. You just sit around with a lot of time to think about it is hard. And and so I'm curious, somebody who is in politics all the time, is fighting in politics all the time. And, you know, as we've talked about here is often, you know, losing, uh, you know, has things that, that you wish happened that, you know, as hard as you fight for them do not happen and maintains a pretty positive affect. I'm curious how you stay one on the right side of that distinction, you know, being hopeful without being so optimistic that you lose your bearings when it's dashed, but also just how you hold to that, like how you are managing to keep some sense of political possibility alive for yourself in a moment that is, there's so much suffering here that could have been prevented and hasn't been, that it can be hard to sit and contemplate it. Yeah. Well, First of all, I, I feel like we win a lot. I don't feel like we lose a lot. I mean, I started after 9-11 organizing on Muslims and, you know, really pushing back on civil liberties abuses. And I mean, we stopped the federal government from deporting, th you know, thousands of Somalis and we 
completely changed the nature of immigration policy in Washington state and had all these wins. We won on $15. We became the first city to pass a $15 minimum wage. I would argue we were winning on Medicare for all. We haven't gotten the policy into place, but I think you have to look at big change from a long-term perspective. You can't look at it overnight because no major change that this country has ever made or has ever happened in the world happened overnight. And so that's part of how I am, uh, uh, some people call me the hope dispenser because I do do a lot of work that is about helping people to feel hopeful again. And I came into Congress the same, I was elected the same night Donald Trump was elected. So talk about hopelessness and starting, you know, my career in Congress with that. My activist career started in the wake of 9-11. And so I guess I'm used to, as an immigrant, pushing boulders up mountaintops. But I also believe so deeply in the fact that we can achieve something different. And it is that unshakable faith. And maybe that's why I like that book so much. Because I think when you look at great leaders, and I try to emulate or model some of what they do, I get my relief and my inspiration from thinking about the people who have made great change in the in the world before, and how they continue. And then I try to build in some practices that remind me that compassion and hope in the future are possible and you have to maintain them within yourself. So meditative practice, close relationships with my loved ones, my family, walking my dog. I mean, really simple things, but moments where you just get to experience joy. Because if you don't have that, it becomes very difficult to offer that to anyone else. And I think that that overall combination of believing that something is different and having been part of making a completely different environment in Washington state around immigration because of the work we did, changing people's lives in different ways um, because of $15 minimum wage. I mean, those are those are things that give you hope and have you continue to believe that something else is possible. And if politics is the art of the possible, then I've always believed that it's our job as activists, whether we're on the outside or whether we're in Congress, to push the limits of what is seen as possible. And that's what I try to do. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Congresswoman Jayapal for being here. Thank you to you for being here. If you've got quantum mechanics questions you would like to hear Sean Carroll forced to answer, please send them to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. If you'd like to give the show a bit of recognition, please vote for us in the Webbies, the link in the show notes, or you can always just give us that iTunes review, Apple Podcast review. That helps too. Um, thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffy Gell for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.